Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Well, thank you for coming, and it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce the formidably multi-talented Daniel Handler. Um, he was born and brought up in San Francisco. He went east to Wesleyan for his undergrad degree and lived in New York for a while afterwards. He and his wife and son now live in San Francisco. Um, Daniel is the author of three books, three books for adults, that is. His first book was called The Basic Eight, which is narrated by a 19-year-old uh, girl accused of Satanism and murder during her senior year at high school. Uh, the book is a sharp-edged satire featuring the tabloid media, lots of rum and absinthe, and the universal teenage desire for revenge. It's good stuff. Daniel followed up with Watch Your Mouth, which, at least in its UK edition, had the subtitle An Incest Comedy. <laughs> the first half of the book is presented as a mock opera with stage and orchestra directions. The second half is a version of the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program. And that doesn't even begin to describe the brilliant, inspired wackiness of this book. The Village Voice described it as, quote, one of those incest comedy Jewish porn opera novels, end quote. <laughs> the San Francisco Chronicle observed that it was a monster piece of creativity, but underneath the roar and bluster beats a surprisingly gentle heart. And I'll just say, just read it. Uh, Daniel most recently published Adverbs, a collection of stories that connect and intersect in surprising and interesting ways. Each story is a meditation on love. Each story is titled with an adverb. So the couple of the titles are soundly and truly. The, the prose is lyrical and full of little explosions that surprise and delight. And the heartbreaking and the longing is very real. The Kirkus Review wrote, um, quote, Handler's prose is warm, funny, smart, and addictively readable. Experimental fiction is rarely this emotionally engaging, end quote. So I don't want to go on too long, so I'll just give you a quick rundown of the rest of Daniel's resume. <laughs> He's a composer whose work has been performed by the San Francisco Symphony and other orchestras around the world. He's an accomplished musician and performs as an adjunct accordionist for the band The Magnetic Fields. He's a screenwriter whose credits include the feature film Rick, which starred Bill Pullman, if I'm remembering correctly. And of course, he's Lemony Snicket. I won't try to tell you about Lemony Snicket's worldwide fame and success or about the delights to be found in the books which comprise a series of unfortunate events. I'm sure you already know those. But I will tell you a story about how my wife, Melanie, who's not here tonight, and I first met Daniel. We went to a dinner party at his house as the plus two for a writer friend of ours who was in town to do a reading. We knew only that we were going to dinner at Daniel and Lisa's house, and we didn't know anything else about our hosts. So at the dinner table, Melanie finally asked, so what do you do, Daniel? <laughs> and Daniel said, rather modestly, I'm a writer. And Melanie got this look on her face and said, wait, what's your last name? And so he said, Handler. And Melanie screamed, oh my God, you're Lemony Snicket. <laughs> so uh, I give you Renaissance man and rock star, Daniel Handler. Hello. Um, thank you for that very flattering um, 
but slightly inaccurate introduction. Uh, there was a crucial uh, part of your wife's reaction that you left out, and I don't know if it was tact or amnesia, um, or heavy drink, or uh, any number of things that Mr. Chandra indulges in. Um, she uh, screamed, and then she hit me. Um, and I was really surprised. I hadn't been hit at the dinner table for a long time. Um, and so, although uh, there were some believable excuses proffered for your wife's absence this evening, I think it's because she knew we were going to get into it again. And I've been working out, that's, it was like two years ago, so now I'm in prime physical shape, as you all can see. Hello! Uh, thank you for having me here. I haven't been inside the Berkeley Library for a long time, and then it was not under professional circumstances at all. I had a girlfriend, it's a long story. Um, but thank you for coming, I'm particularly charmed by the people up here. It's, that's kind of like an anxiety dream. <laughs> I gave a reading and then there were people who were looking over my shoulder during the whole thing. Um, I also, when I, look, when I snuck a look at the podium here, I saw that um, there's, a slight, there's a small poem written here that says, mouth 10 inches from Mike. Um, seems naughty in some way <laughs> every part of it mouth, ten inches, mic who are these people um, speaking of love uh, I will be reading tonight uh, from this book Adverbs um, which is about love um, the idea for the book uh, came to me uh, when I was living in New York and I was riding the subway with my wife and she and I were having a, uh, an argument, not a dramatic argument, but an argument nonetheless. And she said something to the effect of, um, you know, I don't have to be with a person like you. And I said, well, I don't have to be with a person like you either. And I walked across the uh, subway car and I stood next to uh, an elderly woman overwhelmed with packages and um, over her shoulder, so the elderly woman couldn't see me, but so my wife could, I stared lovingly at this uh, elderly woman as if to say that I could get a woman like this. I didn't have to put up with nonsense from my wife. Um, and uh, my wife began to giggle, and I began to giggle, and that was pretty much the end of the argument. But uh, it stuck with me um, that how strange it would be to um, love a total stranger, and then, of course, one does end up loving total strangers. Um, you meet them, and then you fall in love with them, and that, in some ways, the love seems to have nothing to do with the people, but has to do with uh, the way that it is done. In other words, it has nothing to do with the nouns. It has to do with the adverbs. So I'll be reading an adverb uh, today, pausing to lower myself awkwardly toward my water. I guess I should put it here next to this beautiful orchid that... The Berkeley Library has spent years growing in my honor. <laughs> it's silk, relax. Um, this adverb is frigidly. What a bad day it was. The clouds low and cloudy, the rain no fun, the dark as it hit late afternoon thick like someone who stops by your place and just won't leave. The day was canceled, almost, on account of the rain spilling itself all over everything. Everybody was eating at the diner where the food is lousy, but you go there anyway. Everything was lousy about it. 
The chairs and tables stayed sticky, if you know what I mean. If you know what I mean, there were five people inside the diner, plus a couple way off in the corner bickering together about something and the cook. Behind the counter was a guy who owned the place with an apron on. He was, let's say, polishing glasses with a white rag. Sitting on one of the stools was a woman who had been drinking. Near her lurked a young boy who didn't belong to her. The boy was named Mike. Someone was supposed to meet him and hadn't shown up, and Mike, bored, just stayed around anyway, pressing the buttons of the jukebox without putting money in and slurping the leftover ice from a glass of soda the owner had given him out of pity. Mike didn't mind it. Mike was ten years old, and already lots and lots of interesting things had happened to him in his life, so he could take a break this afternoon and punch nothing into the jukebox for a few hours. Nobody was worried about him. Mike was worrying nobody sick. Down the counter a ways were the two detectives who automatically make a story get interesting. Even though the only interesting thing they were doing was eating waffles, both of them, at 5.30 in the afternoon. They had taken off their hats and lined them up together on the counter like two very short additional customers. This is how it was, the five people, Andy and Mike and the woman who had been drinking, Andrea, and the two detectives, while the couple bickered in the back and the cook stared into space at the grill, thinking, well, if I took my goddamn spatula and scraped at that piece of burnt cheese, if I scrape it right there, it would look like the state of Nevada. (laughs) This was that day, if you know what I mean. Outside it was dark, and what with the rain, you might not even know Andy's was open. This was when there was a power shortage in California. It turned out to be corporate greed, but at the time it seemed like there might be something to it, so everybody tried to be real careful. All the neon signs were quiet, and it was hard to see what was open and what wasn't. The Andes sign was off. It definitely wasn't Christmas, and yet the snowman and the wreath were still painted on the windows. Outside garbage blew, running stop signs and red lights. We've all had days like this. If you know what I mean, it felt reckless, the rain and whatnot, but only if your idea of reckless is sitting at a diner and having whatever you felt like. There were limits to the menu, of course, and on days like this, that hurt. You wanted to go do something, and nobody would help you. It was a bad day for love. Andrea, in particular, was taking it hard. I want an angel's nipple, she said to Andy. It's rum and heavy cream and an egg white with a floater of maraschino liqueur. I want a Louisiana flip or a Neptune fizz. We don't have those party drinks, Andy said. You know that, honey. I'll bring you another half carafe of the house red if you want. If I want, Andrea sneered. She moved her hand down the counter like a spilled something, honey or milk. Mike watched her because it was a free country. I want a doobie careful. I want a Pim's cup. I want a Delmonico with a twist served up. I'll serve you up a half carafe of white or red, Andy said patiently. Come on now, Andrea. They don't have those things at a diner. It's not the end of the world. When they say it's not the end of the world, Andrea said, it usually is. The world can only end once, said one of the detectives, and then he raised a paper napkin to his mouth and wiped himself a false hearty smile. I know, he said. Here's something we can do. What is your name? Andrea? Do you want to do something? Do you want to look at a picture? He turned to the other detective, who was already taking a photograph out of his jacket. It was not in an envelope. Let's show her the picture, he said, and put the photograph down on the counter where it would probably stick. Andy frowned even before he saw it. You love once, and then maybe not again. Not on a day like this. The rain, the rain, the rain. You can't even hear it outside the window, but still, it's a sad thing. Rain, the grade school teachers say, makes the trees and flowers grow, But we're not trees and flowers, and so many grade school teachers are single. 
<laughs> even Mike's teacher got lonesome, brokenhearted like this. Her husband left and took all the red wine and even the salt on the grounds that it was his. No, if you loved once and then kaput, then it looks like rain in your life. At least an angel's nipple would make it taste better, if you know what I mean. If you know what I mean, the picture showed an old woman looking steadily at the camera in black and white, almost a formal portrait. Andy put a half carafe of red in front of Andrea. Who are you guys, Andrea said. I think I'll have a half carafe of red, Andy. We're detectives, the detective said. Mike looked up from the jukebox because it was interesting now. He looked at the picture. Murderer? I thought you weren't supposed to say we're detectives. She said we're detectives in the tone of voice someone might use to say making you happy isn't making me happy. You're thinking of spies, the detective said. I'm thinking of leaving, is what I'm thinking of, Andrea said. Don't leave, lady, the detective said. We're just showing you a picture. We flew all the way to San Fran and came to this diner. I hate it when people call it San Fran, Andrea said. San Fran is what everyone calls it, said the detective. Like the song says, I guess when it rains, it pours. Andrea poured more from the carafe into the glass and then, less successfully, back again. Why don't you leave her alone? It's Gladys, Andy said, turning his head so he wouldn't have to look at the picture upside down anymore. Gladys, the man says. The detective turned to the other detective as if they were partners. She's calling herself Gladys now. The partner took out a pen and then looked around. Their two hats were sitting in front of a paper placemat the diner used. He slid it over and wrote Gladys, G-L-A-D-Y-S, in big pen letters. You asshole, Andrea said to the owner of the place. You asshole jerk Andy. Andy raised his hands very mildly, and Mike blushed back by the jukebox. She comes in here all the time, Andy said to the detectives, and poured them more coffee. Much obliged, the, doc- the detective said about the coffee, and then turned to his partner. Man says she comes here all the time. The other detective nodded and wrote, comes here all the time, below Gladys on the placemat. Why did you tell them that, Andrea said. God, I want a drink. She slugged her wine down, which didn't take long. I want a Hong Kong cobbler. I want a Gypsy Rose. I want a Mother's Ruin or a Singapore Sling. Either one. They're both gin-based, but I forget which one has ginger beer. We don't have those party drinks here, Andy said patiently. This is a diner. I thought about opening a bar, but that was a long time ago. Seems like a bar wouldn't have drinks like that. More's the pity, the detective said. Times have unfortunately changed. Andrea stumbled up off her stool and went and sat closer to the detectives. She tried to pick up the picture, but it stuck to the counter, like I told you. I've never seen this woman before in my life, she said. I come in here all the time. Usually drunk and sad, Andy said. When Andy said she comes here all the time, he meant me, she said, tapping the placemat with a nail she broke on a man's door. I come here all the time, and I've never seen Gladys in all my life. Don't get like that, the detective said. This other guy and me, we're detectives. Our client wants us to find the woman in the picture. There's only one of them. We flew out here, we ask around, and she's calling herself Gladys now, and she comes here, we wait, she comes here, we got it, and it's kaput, kaput, kaput. Cake. Cake, the partner said also. She always calls herself Gladys, Andrea said, slouching back to her place. Cake, Andy said. A very bad covered cake was nearby and some lonely donuts. It's an expression detectives use, the detective said, like easy as cake. Pie, Mike said. At school, he just had a test on expressions like easy as pie, but he said it so quietly only the jukebox heard. Another one is south side, the detective said. It's a detective expression if someone is, what's it called, fleeing. If they're fleeing, a detective will say south side, because where do birds go? 
South side, Andy tried, and Mike murmured it to himself. I wish all my troubles go south side. South side, the detective said. All the birds end up in South America. Not a lot of people know. Every bird in the world. They say in Peru you can scarcely walk in winter without stepping on a bird of some kind. Of course, some birds are evergreen, but the rest are in South America. Is that so? Andy said. He'd heard a lot of as part of owning and operating a diner, but speaking of cake, this took it. No, Mike whispered, and then turned around and said it. No, birds migrate according to to a variety of patterns. I learned about it, and we saw some magpies on a field trip two and a half days ago. Oh, we were supposed to, but we didn't because of the rain. The yellow-billed magpie can be found exclusively in the coastal valleys south of San Francisco Bay, and there are three common words beginning with the letter A that describe it. The first is attractive. Don't you have some place to go? The detective said. No, Mike said, and Andrea finished her wine and raised her fist in a salute. It's a free country. If you're going to tell my customers to leave, Andy said, I'll have to ask you gentlemen to go south side. <laughs> but then Andy ruined it and winked at the boy, telling Mike that there wasn't anybody on his side after all. We're detectives, the partner said. What do detectives, Andrea said, using the word detectives like she had used the word your wife Helena not so long ago, want with Gladys anyway? She's a nice old lady and she doesn't have any money probably. She used to be an actress. She works, I think, at a store someplace, Andy volunteered. I heard her say at the store once, or back at the store. She's not bothering anyone, or you. What business do you have? The detectives looked at one another like this was their least favorite part of the job. Our client, said the one who keeps talking, says this woman Gladys is the Snow Queen. The Snow Queen, Andy said. Who the f*** is the Snow Queen? Excuse my language, kid. I see there's some kids in the audience here, so I will also say, excuse my language. It's not my fault. These guys are just talking like this. <laughs> you should use gentle words. It's okay, Mike said. I've heard people say fuck a bunch of times. Don't say Andrea said. Once you say it's all over and your life has changed. Andy, how come you don't say excuse me to me? I'm a lady with your language. How about you give me another soda, said bold, bold Mike to Andy for swearing. Andy set him up of the opinion that sugar didn't hurt kids one bit. This was a rare commodity, and Mike was learning to appreciate such people. The Snow Queen, if anybody cares, said the detective, is an agent of the underworld of Kata. In human form, she takes the human form of a woman. As her name implies, she can control all types of weather, especially snow. Gladys is making it rain, Andy said, thinking, and I didn't even have to open a bar to hear this kind of crazy talk. That's what the man says, said the detective. And what man is that, Andy said. My client, the detective said. Our client, my partner, and me. And what is your client, Andy said, want with the snow queen and cleared the waffles. He's in love with her, the detective said. We get paid by the hour. Love is hourly, too. There are some stories about people who have loved someone forever after laying eyes on them for a few minutes and then never more. But these stories have not happened to anyone we know. No. When you love someone, you spend hours and hours with them, and even the mightiest forces in the netherworld of Kata could not say whether the hours you spend increase your love or if you simply spend more hours with someone as your love increases. And when the love is over, when the diner of love seems closed from the outside, you want all those hours back, along with anything you left at the lover's house and maybe a couple of things which aren't technically yours on the grounds that you wasted a portion of your life and those hours have all gone south side. Nobody can make this better, it seems. Nothing on the menu. It's like what the stewardess offers, even in first class. 
They come with towels, with drinks, mints, but they never say, here's the five hours we took from you when you flew across the country to New York to live with your boyfriend. And then one day he got in a taxi cab and never came back. And also you flew back another five hours to San Francisco just in time for a catastrophe. And so you sit like a spilled drink, those missing hours in you like an ache. And you hear stories that aren't true and won't bring anyone back. Things happen and you never get over them. And through the door came Gladys, the woman in the picture. And this is something none of the five people would ever get over. She was older than you might think, but she looked good, and she did not look around, but went straight to the counter and sat down and put an arm around Andrea. It's good to see you, Andrea, she said. I thought I might not see you. This place doesn't even look open. What with the sign, Dark? Hello, Nancy, Andrea said, and Andy poured half a cup of coffee. You're drinking more than usual if I'm Nancy, Gladys said. Well, never you mind, dear. I know you're sad. What you need is a Jean Ahern gloom chaser. It's two kinds of rum and cognac, contro, lemon juice, and a bit of sugar all stirred up and served in a highball glass with cola. That sounds terrible, Andrea said, but I guess it might be good. It's delicious, Gladys said. If I were you, I'd order one. We don't have those party drinks, Andy said, breaking someone's heart every day. This is a diner. I know what it is, Gladys said, and she drank half her coffee in one gulp. As you well know, Andrea, the Gene Ahern Gloom Chaser was invented by Gene Ahern, the author of the comic strip. I don't know it, Andrea said with a shrug and an empty carafe. Why do you say that, as you well know? As you well know, Gladys said, it's an affectation of mine. What is the comic strip, Mike asked. Even Mike had recognized Gladys, but maybe could not believe it, that something so interesting would happen after all this jukebox, after waiting for the guy to show up who never did, and the detectives. He had given up the day for lousy, and now, the woman they were looking for? Now? The comic strip, Gladys said, moving her coffee cup away to Andy like a chess piece, was called Room and Board, and as you well know, it was not funny at all. There was one I remember, a man in a clown suit, big red nose, long, big long beard, big tall hat with a tassel like they do. He was looking in the mirror, and the speech bubble says, I can't go to the mass ball like this, I need a shave, something like that. Not funny, as you well know. But for a while, there was talk of a movie, and I was going to be the ingenue. What's the ingenue? Nancy, Mike asked. He got the code, the Nancy strategy, even though it would not work. An ingenue, Gladys said, is an innocent woman. It doesn't surprise me that a boy your age hasn't seen one. And I'm Gladys, dear. Comic strips is about the only place you see them, comic strips and private homes. I agree with a man I know, said the detective suddenly. Beg pardon? Gladys said. Man says innocence is the rarest of commodities in the known world, the detective said. Gladys's face changed, and it was a shame to see. Could you repeat yourself, please, Gladys said, sir? The detective took his lazy time. My partner and I, he said, and the sweeping palm said, and our hats. We know a man says, innocence is the rarest of commodities in the known world, says, when you find it, grab it, no matter who you have to hire. And how do you know this man, Gladys said sadly, sitting next to you, maybe? I know him the same way that I know you drink your coffee in half cups, the detective said, and his partner lifted the placemat from the table. Gladys looked down for the first time and saw a picture of herself, and then the message in ink, Gladys comes here all the time. It was true. Gladys, pay no attention to these guys, Andy said. These guys are dumb. They think South, Africa is, uh, South America is crawling with birds, and I'm going to call the police. 
Their partner put the placemat down and spread his hands on it as if he were healing the sick, which he was not doing. He began to speak. If someone pours you a full cup, he said, Gladys, the bottom half is freezing cold before you can drink it on account of your deadly breath of ice. Isn't that right, your highness? Katu, Gladys said in a mysterious howl, and here we could skip ahead if you know what I mean. It is always tempting to skip past words we do not understand. The parts of a relationship which confuse us and arrive at a nice clear sentence, they clearly weren't in love anymore, or she was wearing some sort of cape, both of which appeared in the report filed by the surviving and more talkative detective. But we cannot skip to that or it wouldn't be a love story. We cannot skip the way we look in photographs or our own affectations or the way we like our coffee or the way people we love like their coffee, even though they like it some bad, bad way. We must suffer through all of it without skipping any tiny thing. And anyway, it was a shawl she was wearing. She spread it out high so it drooped down her arms and she kept saying things we cannot understand. Ka to ma ka! Ebery, ebery, finger sauce! She stood up from her place, her shawl like bat's wings, and stared down the detective's partner with an elegant disgust we've all unfortunately seen. I don't love you anymore, she howled. Katsu, katsu, maka! And she spun out of Andy's diner. When the doors opened, the rush sound of the rain came through, like those doors had been soundproof all this time. A blast of cold air gave everyone its fierce attention. It felt colder than it had been outside, but none of the people in the diner had been outside for a while, and it had grown dark. It could have been anything so cold. It could have been the rain, maybe, or... Your Highness, the partner shouted. He put his hat on and left the premises after her in a hurry. Oh, my God, maybe, Annie said. It couldn't be, but maybe. The Snow Queen, Andrea said so loudly that the carafe wobbled. The Snow Queen, the Snow Queen. But now the door had shut. And through the rain and the paintings on the windows, they stared. Andrea stared and Andy stared. Everyone stared, except the bickering couple so busy wading through the words they wished they could skip that they had only a dim picture of some old woman shouting and leaving, and the cook in his magnificent disinterest mapping out the world on the griddle where he worked, secure in the very wrong knowledge that he had seen everything before. Nobody had seen this thing as Gladys faced this man in a hat and howled something inaudible as he froze in his steps and finally beheld her. Do you think, Andy said and put down the coffee, that everything in the entire world, Andrea said, that ever, anyone ever told us is wrong? And maybe this is why Mike stared the hardest. It is bad news when the world tells you the bad news that you are wrong, unless you are 10 and this happens every five minutes. And the only difficulty is that adults spend most of their time pretending nothing much has gone amiss. Mike stared hardest as Gladys raised her shawl again and began the thing no one had seen before. It was not the rain. It was not the wine. It was not the painted window which was not blocking the view. Gladys howled, and from the folds of her shawl came a spiral something. It was made of flurries, it looked like, white and gray in the diminished light. The spiral spun out wider, wider, until it hit the detective's partner and covered him instantly with what had to be snow. It hurt. It hurt him. He was covered and could not move, and then the Snow Queen stepped back and was no longer framed in the window. What was that the hell? Andy said. What was that outside my diner? The detective turned out to be standing flat against the far wall. That was the cone of frost, he said. I never thought I'd see that in my whole damn life. 
Nobody realized that Mike was out the door, although Andrea was staring after him and hoping it was the wine, all she saw. She could not move from her place. This woman who had been drinking. And just so you have some background, everyone in this story is sad. Let's get it straight. Everyone here has lost a child, a burden given to so many characters as they walk through a small pinch of paper with the dignified literary weight of grief. It's a gratuitous punch in the stomach is what it feels like. When Andy learned the news of the car, which had not just spun but flipped over on the ice and saw the seat belts, the car seat, the special traction of the tires had not been nearly enough to save him. He sank to the mat like a prize fighter and howled on the floor until his friends pulled him up. Such good friends. With Andrea, the child died in the crib, down suddenly like a cheap drink. Mike's little brother died when he fell down the stairs in just the right way, and the ambulance arrived too late on a cold, cold night, and his father hardly spoke or opened the mail ever again. The bickering couple would never know their babies, and the frozen partner on the sidewalk could still hear, even through the ice, those last wet and desperate coughs of his tiny daughter as she flailed in the strong hands of her sobbing mother who ran away as soon as it was done. And even the cook did not know that even at this sad moment, his girlfriend could not stop screaming from what she heard in that numb, white-walled clinic. And the detective was buttoning his coat and still thinking of himself as the father of a little figure-skating girl who was no good at it. She would stumble around the ice until her ankles made her cry, all the while imagining the perfect eights, the twirls and flurries of grace, and this detective would stand and imagine it too on the sidelines as he threw down money for the waffles and buttoned his coat to leave. In the diner, these people had frozen in their tracks from being treated so cruelly. Not only their ankles ached, they were in pain in their feet and in their mouths and with each bite of lousy food and in their ears. The pop songs they heard slayed them every time. Some radio would only have to play for old time's sake. That song that goes, yes, 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 oh baby, yes. And everyone in the diner would be in tears. They could not love anymore, they thought. Just drink and pour coffee and track people down in the rain. They were living frigidly, as if in a cone of frost. It was apparently necessary for their babies to abandon them so they could see what I mean, if you know what I mean. But couldn't they get something back or something else? Love. Is this something we can learn to do again? And if so, when will that time arrive, even on a bad day? When do you know when something is becoming something that changes you? That's what Andrea was thinking of, Anna Ramos Gin Fizz, as she watched the snow-capped figure of the detective's partner topple to the sidewalk and the swift sat shadow of Mike dodge down the street. When do you learn that the world, like any diner worth its salt, is open 24 hours a day? Now. Mike ran after her through the drips and drabs of snow on the ground. It never snowed in San Francisco. Never, never, never. Okay, once when I was in the kindergarten, and I think some other times, but it doesn't stick. This is love, an impossible thing that will change your frigid life. And Mike believed it was happening and ran after her into the night. But by the time the detective got outside, there was nothing he could see, and so we went back inside. Which way did she go, he said, and remembered his hat. Which way did the Snow Queen go? I don't know, Andy said. If I were you, I wouldn't go out there, and I wouldn't want to know. Not you. I can't believe what I saw, Andrea said. The therapy I'll need or something. Or I should sober up and drive a cab for a living now. You meet people in a cab. A miracle could happen, and I would see the Snow Queen again. 
The detective peered out of the painted window and banged his head on the glass hard. It rattled and rattled people. Don't do that, cried the cook. Watch what you're doing. Pay attention to what's going on. She's gone south side, the detective moaned. I don't know which direction to go. And this is love, too. If you miss your Snow Queen, you might not appear in the love story anymore. Men grow old as girls grow cold, a song says. Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. This is a love story, which must be grabbed in time. Mike knew it, and he ran in the rain on the snow. He had been wearing a sweatshirt this whole time, and it was getting heavy and wet. He had the chills as he chased after her, and that's part of love, too. You get the chills when you get close to her, and you run until you slip in a puddle. Ouch, and the Snow Queen turns around. Oh, dear, she said. You're the boy from the diner, and you slipped in a puddle. You'll catch cold. You better come inside. Okay, Mike said, and she pulled him to his feet. I saw what you did, and it was amazing. You're wet, she said. Your sweatshirt is soaked and heavy. I'm worried sick about you. Where does the Snow Queen live? As it turns out, in a small cramped apartment on the third floor of a nearby building on the corner of 17th and Church. When love appears, it's a supernatural thing, like the songs say, but eventually you have to get out of bed, even on the coldest days, and pay the rent. She held the door open for him. Do you have to invite me in? Mike asked. Is it like vampires? I should have known, the Snow Queen said, that a boy your age would have a thing for vampires. As you well know, that's what made my fortune, my boy. They walked in and saw what she was talking about. The place was a little more was little more than some walls in a kitchenette, and everywhere there are very stark, large stacks of magazines and photographs taped to the walls every which way. I told you it was cramped. Mike walked quietly and took it in while the Snow Queen took off her shawl and boiled water for tea. You should take off your sweatshirt, dear. Mike, Mike said and took off his sweatshirt. Look, you were really an actress. These pictures of you in old monster movies. That was me, the Snow Queen said. Dracula's daughter, a girl who comes across a terrible secret at her uncle's castle. Look, in this one, a ghost falls in love with me and we go to a restaurant. It's a comedy. Here I'm going mad when they're reading the hypnotist's last will and testament, and in the corner, a terrible creature is taking me away. Mike's shirt was soaked, too, and he took it off and handed it to her without thinking. Here you are something else, he said. She found a towel and touched his bare back as she drooped it around his shoulders like a shawl, and he shivered. You have white makeup and a cape and a cardboard crown. The Snow Queen, the Snow Queen said. Are you really? Mike asked. How did my line sound? She asked back. At one point, Mike said, one time it sounded like you said finger sauce. (laughs) Hardly the words of the netherworld of Kata, the Snow Queen said, and unlaced his shoes, sneaker by sneaker. Was it fun, Mike asked? A movie star? I bet you got to go to parties. It's funny you should say parties, the Snow Queen said sadly. I had this part over there taped up near the light switch where I was sort of a ghost grandma. I had a line, it's a party. They had me do it 15 times. It's a party, 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 it's a party. And it never made it into the picture. Nobody wanted to hear it. You can say something and say something, but still nobody wants to hear it. I want to hear it, Mike said, his soaking socks off. I was in love, the Snow Queen said. That was the last thing I was in, and the the director fell in love with me, or anyway, we had a baby. But the baby passed on. My baby sister passed on, Mike said. It's a terrible thing, the Snow Queen said. I've barely gotten out of bed since, and the director too. He couldn't think of anything else but all those monster stories. I ran away from him and wasted all the money to forget, and if I had one wish now, it would be for that baby back, 
something to love on these cold days alone. If your baby was alive, asked Mike, would it be my age? Oh, goodness, no, the Snow Queen said, and then slapped her strong hands on her knees. If you could have one wish, what would it be for your turn? Mike looked out the window down the street. Most of the signs were dark, and some of the rain was almost hail. I guess calamari, he said, blushing because he knew it was dumb. I had it in Santa Cruz, and I really liked it, but probably I can't have it now. The Snow Queen smiled and walked over to her freezer. Inside, it was so covered in frost, there was only one thing in it. She pulled it out and threw it on the table in front of him. It was a bag of calamari, frozen and pictured on the packaging. Everything she said was coming true. She was a prophetess, something from elsewhere, and this is part of love, too. You must believe what is happening, every pronouncement the love is making, or you might as well go back to the diner and wait for someone who has forgotten you completely. I have a microwave, the Snow Queen pronounced grandly. It will be ready in three to five minutes. In three to five minutes, the world can change, and three to five minutes might even be a generous estimate for a relationship between a ten-year-old boy and an older woman from the netherworld of Kata, if you know what I mean. But all love gets over, and we must get over it. Even Mike, young as he was, knew that the guy he was waiting for at the diner wasn't going to show. The whole world seemed up in that apartment, like the freezer of the Snow Queen might give them a limitless menu if they could just wish for everything they wanted. They grinned at the microwave, Mike especially because he was the one who loved the calamari, but the Snow Queen too because she was the one who loved him. He was innocent, a rare commodity, and some might say she should leave him alone. But she'd been left alone too long, and who are those people anyway, bickering in the corner and saying such things? Love like this. It was better than sitting in a diner doing nothing, because look what has arrived for Andrea, a man who will treat her badly, Tony. Are you open? Tony said. I can't tell. We're always open, Andy said. Any diner worth its salt is open 24 hours a day. I'm in the mood for a drink, Tony said. Andrea twirled all the way around on her stool, as the diner was the sort of place where that could be done. She was not going to see the Snow Queen today, not again, but in the meantime, here was something who could help her through three to five minutes. I recommend the Suffering Bastard, she said. It's four parts gin, three parts brandy, one part lime juice, sugar syrup, Angostura bitters, ginger ale, and it's garnished with a slice of cucumber. Sounds good to me, Tony said. Somebody give us two of those. He would treat her badly, but in the meantime, love like this was better. Better something poured over ice than just the ice outside in a heap by itself. We don't serve party drinks like that, Andy said. This is a diner, and even if we did, I wouldn't serve you to that. I've seen a miracle today, and I want to see more of them, so I'm spending the rest of the evening scraping the paint off these windows of mine. I'd make the cook make you a drink, I guess, if we had such things. Idaho, said the cook, lost again to us. But nobody heard him because Andrea had already, Andy had already started scraping. The scraping was such a horrible sound that the woman in the corner looked up and for the first time realized she was in this story too, not just the one where she bickered with her ghost of a boyfriend. No need, Tony said. Let's get out of here and go to a bar. You ever been to the Black Elephant, Andrea? See you later, Andy, Andrea said. You owe me like $26 for those half carafes, he said over the scraping. She'll pay you later, Tony said, and they walked out together like they were going to a masked ball. Out in front of Andy's was the frozen figure of a man with his hat on, his face icy, in the middle of some terrible speech. Toppled, he looked like one of the victims of Pompeii at a city destroyed in a volcano, studied by Mike in his classroom a while ago, although now, in the Snow Queen's apartment, Mike was reciting the three common words, beginning with the letter A, often used to describe magpies. Magpies are artful and aggressive birds who are often attracted to shiny things. 
which is maybe why Tony turned from the dull gray white of the man on the sidewalk to the brightening shine of Andrea's pretty eyes. Who's that? Tony said, shrugging to the frozen guy. Looks like an ex-boyfriend to me, Andrea said. Somebody treated him cold, Tony said. Although there was plenty of rain, there was no more sunlight on the street, which meant this lousy day was pretty much over, if you know what I mean. If you know what I mean, that's what was happening to them. It happens all the time, Andrea said. It's not the end of the world. Thank you. Uh, and now if you have questions, I will answer them. And if you don't, I won't. No. Yes and no questions are kind of party killers, I find, in this situation. Yes. What's my favorite magnetic field song? I'm repeating the question to stall. Um, gosh, my favorite Stephen Merritt song is Give Me Back My Dreams for the seventh, second sixths album. Maybe my favorite uh, magnetic field song is The Things We Did and Didn't Do, which is an homage to Gertrude Stein, who I first read in this very library. One of those things that feels relevant, but <laughs> yes. What age did I want to be a writer? I don't remember an age when I didn't want to be a writer. My parents tell a story that when I was six, I was asked when I wanted to be when I grew up, and that I said I wanted to be a wise old man who lived on top of a mountain that people came to for advice. <laughs> so if that story is true, and my parents are liars, but if that story is true, then that was a plan that I had, but. After that plan, I always wanted to be a writer. <laughs> it's hard to believe you could think of something that would be more ridiculous than being a writer, but that is more ridiculous. <laughs> is that you're raising your hand or you're just... Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, how do you get started? How do I get started? Like Double espresso, first thing in the morning. What? <laughs> oh, with writing. Yeah. Um, how do I get started? Um... I, um, I, I keep a notebook with me where I write down things that pop into my head or things that I hear whilst eavesdropping. Um, and then I try to figure out if any of them are any good. And then I take a legal pad and start writing them down. I write on legal pads because sometimes I write in a public place um, and I get paranoid that my laptop will be stolen when I go to the bathroom. <laughs> because you feel like an idiot if you leave it there, but then you also feel like an idiot if you take it with you to the bathroom. <laughs> and so then you end up asking someone you don't know if they could watch your laptop, which doesn't seem like a good plan at all. And so I started writing on legal paths, which no one steals. <laughs> yes? Where's your favorite place to eavesdrop? Where's my favorite place to eavesdrop? Well, there's so many. Airports are really good. Um, now, with the invention of cell phones, you can eavesdrop any place because people are talking so loudly all the time. You can be half a mile away. You can't not eavesdrop, sadly, in this world. Um, diners, any bad restaurant. A good restaurant, people talk boringly. In a bad restaurant, you get all the goods. Um, you know those restaurants where you're this, where the next table's here, 
but through social contract, you agree not to be their guest. <laughs> Those are great places to eavesdrop because you can literally hear every word of the conversation. Yes? What do the first travels, drafts of my novels look like? Long, unbelievably long. The first draft of this novel was about a thousand pages long. Um, and it's now 272 pages long. Thank goodness. Um, so yes, I, I, they, they're really, really, really long. And then I hack away at them. Yes. Yes, I did. I wrote um, a, a novel called Midnight Festivities at the Aquarium, um, which if you're interested in reading, you can break into uh, the house where I grew up and find that copy. Um, it was about people who, who broke into the aquarium in the middle of the night and had parties. It wasn't very good. Though that sounds fun, the novel itself wasn't very good. Yes. Um, I've been reading adverbs, and I wondered if you started each short story with the adverb in mind, or if that came along after the description. Um. No. What happened? Well, after I had, a, I fell in love with the old woman on the subway. Um, I um, I started writing uh, stories about people who were in love, and um, then I had to put them into my computer. And the stories in adverbs all have the same um, elements to them. They have taxicabs and cocktails and all these things. And so it's very hard to save them. You have to provide a title when you save something. That's another reason I don't like computers, is that you have to save it right away. And they say, well, what do you want to call it? And you say, I don't know. I just started. Give me a break. <laughs> just save it for me. And then bring it back later. Why do you need to know all this stuff? Um, and... Um, I find that, that, yeah, I just was having a fight with my computer today where it wouldn't send an email, and it said, should I try something else? Should I try this server? And I thought, go, I don't care. Try, you know, pray to the sun god. Send the email. It's not, you're not asking me. Uh. Anyway, um, and so I had to call the sections in the novel something, and the first one that I saved, I thought, what can I call it that will not confuse me? If I say taxi story or something, that wouldn't be specific enough. And so I said immediately, and then it all. And then in that moment, I had a small cardiac moment because I thought, "Oh, I'm really talking about adverbs." And then I had a long list of adverbs, and I decided I would have to do a story about each one, which is how you get to a thousand pages. Um, and then um, I had long conversations with my wife, who likes to say the sentence, "That's not interesting," <laughs> when I describe projects to her. Look, and there would be a story for everyone. No. <laughs> yes. What's your favorite cocktail? My favorite cocktail? Oh, there's so many good ones. Um, well, I like the Delmonico a lot. I have, there's, I have a short story, a mystery story called the Delmonico, and the Delmonico was just mentioned in the story I read, which is. Um, it's pretty much a gin martini with a little bit of brandy and a little bit of bitters in it. It's delicious and complicated and uh, makes you kind of scowl when you drink it, which I find charming. 
That story always makes me want to drink, doesn't it? I, I feel, I, I wish I could say, oh, I have a, get in line, I'll mix you something. Yes. How did I meet my wife? I met her in college. So those of you who are in college, keep your eyes open. Um, and uh, I'll tell you the story and you won't believe it because no one ever believes it. But um, while in college, I had a seizure disorder. <laughs> and um, I passed out in her lap in Chaucer class. And she was very disturbed. <laughs> and so when I woke up, I had to apologize first thing, which is a great way to start a relationship. Um, and that's how we met 17 years ago. Yes, sir? What's your most, during the course of the day, what's your most productive time when you don't have a pencil pad or a, or a keyboard in front of you? What's my most productive time when I don't have one? Um, there, sure, yes. Because you can always find a pen. When can't you find a pen? What is your head churning? Oh, I'm a morning person. Yeah. Um, so I, I wake up early. Well, I have a kid also, so kids get up early because there's something wrong with them. And he gets up about, we, uh, he, came, uh, he can't bother us. We have to bother him. But he gets up, I think, uh, about 5.30. I know. Um, talk about wanting a drink. And, but he, um, he, I don't know what he does, frankly. He, I, I can kind of hear him in a kind of uh, faint horror movie way moving around the house. But I, and then I get up about 6. Um, and then I take him to school. This is getting less and less interesting. I feel I need to invent something. And then snakes come. Um, no, but I, um, I'm usually uh, starting writing before 9 in the morning, and I, and I love it. I wish it were morning all day long. And then I stop about 3 because I like to stop when everyone wants to stop, but everyone else has to fake it for a couple more hours. Well, you're all students, so the schedule's all nuts anyway. Yes, ma'am. Um, the question um, which I'm repeating to stall is how do I come up with my characters and are they based on real people, specifically Violet Klaus and Sonny Baudelaire? Yes, sort of. I always think that question is funny because um, how else would you get a character, really? None, none of my characters are people I know with the name changed or something. Um, but of course you steal traits from people because you meet people and I don't know how, how else you could make up something without keeping it in context of people you've met. Um, and Violet, Klaus, and Sonny are kind of blank characters because so many terrible things happen to them um, that I wanted them to be um, kind of blank so you could project your own unhappiness onto them. But um, Violet is good at mechanical devices, which I'm not, and she's kind of the head of the family, and my sister, even though she's younger, is cl clearly the boss of me. Um, <laughs> And then Klaus reads all the time, but his information, though interesting, rarely gets them out of trouble, which I feel is me. And uh, at the time, I didn't have a baby. So when I, uh, when I thought there should be a baby, I thought, well, what do babies do? They bite, and they talk in such a way where no one understands them but their immediate family. Um, and... I turned out to be right about that. That turned out to be absolutely what a baby is, but at the time I thought I was kind of making it up. 
Once this woman at a bookstore with a baby said to me, I think the character of Sonny is ridiculous. And then the baby made a noise. And she said to the baby, what, you want to go home? <laughs> um, so I, uh, so I, don't, I don't really understand. what I understood what my baby was saying when it reached that age. Now, now it, he, is uh, five and a half, so he talks English. Um, but uh, when he was a baby, I understood it, and no one else understood it. And now the only time I understand a baby is when it's crying. I understand that. So when I see a crying baby, I say, I know. <laughs> I hear ya. Yes? How did I come up with the name Lemony Snicket? Instantly. A long time ago. I was about to say before you were born, but it's probably not true. Um, 15 years ago. You're, you're definitely older than 15. Um, I mean, nothing personal. You look youthful and everything. Uh, <laughs> I was researching, I was doing research um, for The Basic Eight, uh, my first novel, and my research consisted of calling uh, right-wing political organizations and uh, religious groups and asking if they would mail me things so that I could put, so I could make fun of them in The Basic Eight, pretty much. And I was on the phone uh, with a right-wing political organization and they said, oh, well, now, sir, may we have your name so we can send you these materials? And I suddenly thought, well, you don't want to be on that mailing list because um, they don't let go. And uh, so I, th I just said, quick, say something. And so I said, Lemony Snicket. And then I thought, really? <laughs> Out of all the names you could have said, would that, that's an unbelievable name. Even a right-wing political organization will not believe that name. And there was a pause. And then the woman said, is that spelled how it sounds? Um, and I said, yes. And then I said, read that back to me, because I had no idea how it sounded like it was spelled. Um, and so then that name I began to use all the time, because it seemed suddenly believable. And so I had a job uh, working... Um, uh, I, I like to say that I was working in academia. Which I was doing was answering the phones at the computer science department at the City College of San Francisco. So it was not what one thinks of when one, th one thinks of academia. This is what one thinks of. And um, uh, I would, as a hobby, I would write angry letters to newspapers. Um, I, I would take the most harmless story in a newspaper, <laughs> and then I would write an outraged letter. And the rules that I made up for myself was that the first sentence of the letter was always the same. It said, how dare you, exclamation point. <laughs> and then I would sign them Lemony Snicket because then I had this name lying around. Uh, and so then when I started writing these books um, for uh, young people, it seemed that they, the, it would be more fun to publish them under the name of the narrator rather than the author. And then I had this name lying around. And so I used it. And... Look what happened. How ridiculous. Yes, ma'am. Do I have a favorite place for writing? A favorite place for writing? I, I write a little bit at home. Um, right now, um, uh, the house is being painted, and so it's poison. So I only sleep there. Um, that can't harm you. No one breathes while they sleep. Um, so I go there, and then I, go, I write at home, and then I also write at some lousy cafes. 
the rule is that it has to be lousy so there's no temptation. So just the idea of ordering any food makes you think, no, oh, God, no. Um, like bad hummus. Yes? Which writers had the greatest influence on me? Well, in high school, I got really into Carson McCullers. Uh, in college, I was unspeakably obsessed with Vladimir Nabokov. Right after college, uh, Haruki Murakami. Um, uh, I went through a heavy Raymond Chandler phase. Alice Monroe, got too into Alice Monroe. Had to stop that a while. Um, those are kind of the big ones. Edward Gorey, when I was young, who I ripped off unspeakably for um, a series of unfortunate events. In fact, when I wrote the first two books, I sent them to Edward Gorey with a note saying how much I admired his work and how I hoped that he would forgive me for all I'd stolen. And a couple weeks later, he died. (laughs) So I like to think that I killed him. (laughs) I have no proof of that. He probably didn't open the package, but I like to think that he went like, this is an outrage, call my solicitor. Um, yes, how could you top that? Oh, look, there's one more desperate question. You're the last person. I feel like it's a horrible question to end on, but when you started writing, did you receive a lot of rejection letters? Yes, I did. I received endless rejection letters. The Basic Eight was rejected from 37 editors. Um, yes, uh, endless rejection. Um, and I feel a vibe that there are people who are considering writing for a living, and... Um, and you will receive no encouragement whatsoever, Um, except from people you love, and then you'll think, well, it's just because you love me, and then you'll begin to treat them badly, and then they won't love you anymore. (laughs) And then you'll have less encouragement, and you'll spiral down and down and down. Um, So you should have a cocktail lined up. Um, Yeah, you'll receive no encouragement whatsoever. The only reward of literature is its own reward, and in charming gatherings like this. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.